0: All right. Good morning. I'm Pastor Bob. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church. And I get the great pleasure of introducing a good friend and Pastor, Pastor David Goff. He's been here for a while. He's preached uh, here before, but it's been a while since he's been up on the pulpit. So I wanted to take a moment to introduce him to you. For those who don't know him, he and his wife Terry have been here for a few years now, and he serves in the church by both filling in in the pulpit at times for us, as well as filling in the pulpits in many other places around here, and, and most recently in a church in Manassas. He also helps steward in the leadership training program and. Pastor Goff comes to us with more than 20 years of ministry experience and also a former professor at Washington Bible College. And you may have noticed that Pastor Doug is not here today. He's in Tennessee, I believe, uh, getting training in biblical counseling. He does that each year. Pastor Stewart's homesick and I was supposed to be at the prison ministry today, but that was canceled. And so David graciously agreed to fill in and to teach us God's word this morning. And so now I'll, I'll turn it over to David.
1: Amen. Thank you, Bob. I mentioned during the uh, first service, uh, Bob uh, gave pretty much the same introduction. I said, if you, if you think all this through, the first stringer is in Tennessee. Second stringer is homesick. Third stringer is uh, something came up and prevented you. I don't know what that means I am, but... Uh, but it's good to be with you, and a blessing to be behind this pulpit. It's been a while since I preached here, and this pulpit is new for me. And so I was wondering if I would ever get the chance to preach behind the pulpit, but today is the day, so looking looking forward to that. So good to see you. We're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, so if you could take your Bible or your electronic device, whatever you read from I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll have a word of prayer together, and we'll dig into John chapter 12 together. Start at verse 1, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, as a result of our opening your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just uh, fill this place with your presence and pray that you would give strength and courage to this speaker, but I pray that you would... Touch the ears and hearts of every hearer. Help us to see, Lord, that this is a word from you to us. These are not the words of man, nor are the words that I will be speaking to be accepted at face value, but this is your word. And so we pray that you would just fill us right now with um, your presence, with the truth of your word, change us, and make us ready for this week that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name O. Henry, was a master of short stories at the turn of the 20th century. Perhaps his most famous writing was a piece called The Gift of the Magi. It's about a poor young couple named Jim and Della and how they deal with the challenge of buying Christmas gifts for one another when they had very little money. Let me just stop there for a second and say, now, we probably don't consider ourselves to have a lot of money this morning. We probably don't consider ourselves to be wealthy or rich. But the truth of the matter is, each one of us has a prized possession, something upon which we place a very high premium. Della's... Was her long flowing hair. It was beautiful hair, very long. And when she let it down, it it covered her shoulders and almost looked like a cape covering her shoulders. Her husband loved her hair. It was her prized possession. Jim's prized possession was a pocket watch. Perhaps he had inherited it from a family member. The story doesn't tell us, but it was, it was something he valued. It was, it was his prized possession, something he was very proud of owning. So it was the day before Christmas, and with less than $2 in hand, Della was desperate to find a gift for her husband, Jim. So she thought and thought and finally decided she would go to a hairdresser and she would have her long tresses cut off and sold. And she did that. She did that so that she might buy him a platinum chain for his pocket watch. Satisfied that she had found the perfect gift, she waited for her husband to come home and was very excited when he he walked in the door. But she was also very self-conscious because she had a new appearance and she knew that her, her husband really loved her long flowing hair. So he was taken aback somewhat. But then she explained, well, the reason she cut her hair was so that she might buy him a Christmas gift. And so she handed him the wrapped box, and he carefully unwrapped it, and he opened it up, and he found that platinum chain for his pocket watch. He was deeply moved, as you might imagine. And then he handed Della the gift that he had for her. She opened it. And inside was an assortment of combs and brushes for her beautiful hair, which was no longer there. Purchased with money, you might have guessed it, from the sale of his pocket watch. Both had surrendered their prized possession out of love for the other. And the cost of the gifts themselves paled in comparison to the, the, the value of the sacrifice that both were willing to make for one another. And of course, the application of that story for us as Christians, at least the most immediate application, is when we see that is exactly what God did for us when he gave us his most prized possession, his beloved son, in order to bear our sins and go to the cross and die there In fact, Romans chapter 8 verse 32 tells us that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And my friends, that is the essence of the gospel message. We must not forget the fact that God gave his very best for the worst of us. But it's in terms of our response to God's sacrificial act on our behalf that I want to direct our thoughts this morning. When Jesus dispatched his first disciples to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom, he told them, freely you have received, freely give. And then in Romans chapter 12 and, and verse 1, we read these words from the apostle and we're exhorted to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now there are other passages that I could share with you this morning. There are a number of them, but when you put them together, they compel us to consider that the sincerity of our love for God can be gauged by the level of our sacrifice that we offer to Him. I'll say that again. The sincerity of our love for God can be gauged by the level of our sacrifice that we offer in worship for Him. The Lord Jesus Himself said that the greatest of all the commandments was that we love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul, and with all our mind. So just reflect upon that statement and understand the comprehensiveness with which Jesus is speaking those words. He said we are to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And I don't know how else you can understand that other than to say we are to hold nothing back in our worship of God. And you are, of course, aware that the world thinks that such a concept is extravagantly wasteful. I mean, that we would give our lives, that we would give the very best that we have for the sole purpose of worshiping God. The world looks at us like we are out of our minds. They say things like, why be a religious fanatic? Why show up for a Sunday morning service such as this when there are so many other wonderful things you could be doing with your time? That's what the world tends to think. Your friends probably think you're foolish for being here this morning. I mean, they say things like this. Why do you think you need to go to church every week? Can't you just go twice a year and get caught up? I mean, I mean after all, why, why even bother at all? Is it really that important that you worship God? And of course, we have an answer for that. Yes, it is important. Why? Because this is what the Lord requires. Now sentiments of that sort are either verbalized or silently thought in relation to committed Christians all the time. It seems that the greater one's devotion of service or of worship to the Lord, the stronger the negative reaction comes. We should not be discouraged, however, and we must not be dissuaded. We are commanded in Scripture to worship the Lord. So in the passage that we read just a moment ago, Jesus has a word for us about worship. It's a familiar story that's recorded with some variation in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel as well. Some of the details are a little bit different. There's also a similar but different story that Luke records that's quite familiar to most of us. Uh, All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually have something to say through a story like this, about costly worship. What does it mean for us to be, uh, to expend cost, price, if you will, in order to worship God? And the unavoidable conclusion, I think, that the gospel writers are calling our attention to is that worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. Worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. Let that, let that thought just linger. Let it hang in the air throughout this message this morning. And then ask yourself, what is the level or the value of worship that you are presenting to the Lord? Not just today, but with your life. So here in John chapter 12, it opens with Jesus entering into the final week of his earthly life. Some commentators say this is the period of crisis now. It's going, to, it's going to end at the cross with Jesus going to the cross. This is the period of crisis of our Lord's ministry. And the disciples, try to imagine the disciples at this point, they're, they're really baffled, they're, they're somewhat curious. What, what's going on? They know that there's a rising tension, there's something about to happen, but they really don't know what's going to happen. They cannot foresee the fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross and give up his life upon that cross. But Jesus knew, didn't he? Jesus knew full well. He was well aware of the fate that awaited him. Luke chapter 9 says that when Jesus uh, knew that his days were drawing near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus knew that the goal of his life was to end on top of a hill just outside the city walls of Jerusalem And he set his face like flint to go there. Nothing was going to deter Jesus from going to the cross. No power on earth could stop Jesus from giving up his life on the cross. The disciples couldn't get it. The disciples didn't understand that. But there is one person in this story who seems to have understood it quite clearly. Her name is Mary. Mary of Bethany. whose brother brother Lazarus, Jesus just raised from the dead a short time earlier. It's Mary who becomes the central figure of this story in the scene being described for us. And so we see first of all in verses 1 through 3 when she comes to Jesus in a display of extravagant worship. I don't know how else to say that. What Mary is about to do is extravagant. And it will be perceived that way. From chapter 11, we learn that Bethany was the village in which Mary with her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. The home seems to have been a place where Jesus was was familiar. He and his disciples apparently had, had visited there before because we're told that Jesus loved this family very much. So on this particular occasion, the text informs us that there was a dinner that was being given in honor of Jesus. At the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, there's a dinner being given in honor of Jesus. It was a private gathering, if you will. I will say private, but there were 14 men there. I mean, you can count them. There was Jesus, there was Lazarus, and then there were the 12 disciples. But there were also two women. And the role of the women primarily in this story anyway was to prepare the meal and to serve the guests. Now Martha, Mary's sister, was accustomed to being the perfect hostess. Some of, some of you ladies are probably the perfect hostess. If I were to come to your house today, I would not find one thing out of place. That's because you've taken your husband and put him somewhere else and you've straightened the house just the way you want. Well, Martha was that kind of, everything had to be, perfectly in place. The table had to be set just right. You know, the the knives, the forks, the, the cups, everything. The food had to be just at the right temperature, had to have the proper garnishing around the food. Everything had to be perfect. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, Mary, on the other hand, was not like Martha. In fact, she got on Martha's nerves. Martha would say, Mary, give me a hand. And Mary would say, no, I've got better things to do. And that is, I'm going to sit at the feet of Jesus and I'm going to learn from him. So verse 3 tells us that sometime, probably after the meal, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. In other words, perfume. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay? If you're familiar with the term, and you are, Lord Jesus Christ, you know Christ is not a name for Jesus, okay? It's a title. It's a Greek word that means anointed. Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus was the one who had been anointed by God the Father to come to earth, to bear the sins of men, die upon the cross, be buried, and rise again. Mary seems to understand that because what she's doing is she's taking this perfume and she's going to anoint Jesus, understanding, if you will, that he is not only the Christ, but he is the one who has been anointed by God to fulfill the role of the Messiah, who's going to come and die for the sins of his people. She understood that Jesus was the anointed one. So in order to appreciate the significance of Mary's act, we have to understand something about the value of the perfume that was poured out on Jesus that night. Nard was an aromatic herb that we believe was, came from northern India, from the Himalayan mountains. It was hermetically sealed. The bottle or the flask in which it was put was, was sealed tightly so as to keep the, the scent fresh. And probably it was, it says a pound here, it's probably a Roman pound, which was called a Libra, which was about 12 ounces. So think about this, ladies. I don't know if you have a 12-ounce bottle of perfume sitting on your dresser. That's a pretty good-sized bottle. It'd be like having a bottle of Coca-Cola or something on your dresser, about that big. Okay, so she's got this huge bottle of perfume. It was not the kind of perfume that you ladies would, would put on, you know, a little bit behind the ear and, you know, wherever you put it. Okay, so it, it was not that kind of perfume. What it was used for was to prepare bodies for burial. You get the point? Mary understood that Jesus was about to die. In fact, Jesus even says those words, doesn't? Leave her alone because she's doing this because of my burial. So, Mary has, has taken this valuable, if you will. And by the way, the text tells us that the value of this perfume was worth 300 denarii. And if you have a little footnote at the bottom of your page, you, you'll realize that a denarius was a day's wages for a common laborer. So if you multiply that by 300, you have a year's wages, about a year's wages for a common laborer. That's how expensive this was. And Mary's going to take this, and she's going to pour it out on the Lord Jesus. Um, the Old Testament and other ancient writings generally depict anointing as something that happens on the head. For example, if a king, uh, is a, if someone is anointed king, we see this in the Old Testament, the, the anointing was on the head. But here we see Mary is pouring out this perfume on the feet of Jesus. That is extremely wasteful. At least it would appear that way, right? People would have looked at Mary and said, why why are you pouring this expensive, uh, scented perfume on the feet of this man? But that's not all. Mary loosened her hair, let her hair down, and she used her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. Women in that day did not let their hair down in public. They did not let their hair down. In public. Not only that, but she used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. She violated all protocol of the day in order to express her worship and devotion for Jesus. And that reminds me that the principle is this to the degree that you and I are willing to hold back for ourselves, to that degree, our worship of the Lord suffers. When we hold back what is rightly the Lord's and what he desires from us, our worship of him suffers. So at the end of verse 3, John adds that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And the idea is that the entire bottle was poured out, and just the whole room just filled with the scent of the perfume. It's interesting that that same expression is found in Paul's writings. Paul, you may recall, had received an offering from some of the churches in Macedonia. And Paul writes this in Philippians 4.18. He says, that gift is like a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So you and I may not have a bottle of perfume to pour out for Jesus, but we have an offering to present to the Lord. And it's described here as a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. No, no selfless, no, no sacrificial offering that you can give to the Lord. And I'm not just talking about your money this morning. I'm talking about what you do in the name of Jesus and for his sake. No matter what that is, no, no, no selfless, no sacrificial offering, whether it's Mary's gift or our ours, ever goes unnoticed or ever goes unrewarded by the Lord. The Lord sees. He knows the hearts of us all. He knows if our hearts are worshiping him or not. And regarding Mary's gift both Matthew and Mark quote Jesus as saying, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And the very fact that we're talking about that this morning is a testimony to that truth, right? Mary's sacrificial offering for the Lord is a story that is going to be told until Jesus comes back again. So what does that mean for us? Well, your offering for the Lord may not be something that is favorably looked upon by all. Others may think about your service to the Lord or the things that you do in Jesus' name, or even the worship that you give to the Lord Jesus and consider it an excessive waste. We see this in verses 4 through 8. Interesting that Judas is singled out as the chief complainant here. In other words, What's this woman doing? But the other gospel writers implicate all the disciples. So we're, we, we can say, that okay, Judas may be the instigator here, but it's the other disciples are involved as well. Matthew writes that when the disciples saw it, that is Mary's act of pouring out the perfume on Jesus' feet, they were indignant. Now notice what they said. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And then Mark adds that they scolded her. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that this woman has, has, has taken her prized possession and she's poured it out for the Lord Jesus and others are scolding her? Others are calling her a fool? Maybe you have made decisions for the Lord that He has compelled you to do and others don't understand. Maybe, maybe they're looking at you and say, yeah, that was a very foolish thing for you. To, why do you want to waste your life serving a God you can't even see? Well, quite likely Judas was the instigator of this opposition. It would appear to be the case because John parenthetically here refers to him as the one who was about to betray Jesus. And so we learn in verse 6 that Judas said this, that is, Why are you doing it? Why are you wasting all of this? Could have been sold for money and given to the poor. So Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, like so many others who profess to know Jesus, Judas lived a double life. Oh, he, he could fool people. I mean, he had, he, had, he had a benevolent exterior, but it, but it masked his, his greedy heart. In reality, he was a phony. He was a hypocrite. His true colors were going to be exposed in very soon. You know, throughout the centuries, the ink and in the pens of writers have, have run dry when they've tried to describe Judas. I mean, you read all kinds of stories. What, what kind of man really was Judas? Well, Scripture here calls him a thief. Interestingly enough, that word for thief is the same word in the Greek that we get our English word, kleptomaniac. In other words, Judas couldn't help himself. Oh, he deceived others, but but he couldn't help himself. His true character was coming out. He may have been well thought of by the group because he was elected the treasurer, but in reality, he was a thief. He was robbing God. But inevitably, all of us who attempt to live duplicitously will be found out. Our sin will be exposed sooner or later. But somebody who knew right away what kind of character Judas was, was Jesus. He was not the least bit fooled. He responds to the entire group in verse 7 saying, Leave her alone, leave Mary alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You see, of all those who were in the room that evening, it was only Mary who understood what was happening, what was going on, where Jesus was headed that he was about to die. And so she anointed him. She expressed her devotion. She expressed her worship, even though everybody else thought her a fool. Jesus' response was both a commendation of Mary and a criticism of his closest companions. He says, why do you trouble the woman? Why, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And then he adds plainly, in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. I'm wondering if the disciples were still munching on their dessert and didn't get all this. They don't seem to be picking up on the conversation. They're criticizing Mary for her act of worship. And yet Jesus commends her because she's the only one who got it right. So the immediacy of Jesus' words were not comprehended by those who heard them. Preparing me for my burial. And they just keep eating away or they just keep conversing with themselves. They did not get it. Perhaps none of these men realized that the events were were being set in motion, that were going to bring a climax to God's glorious plan of redeeming his people through the death and resurrection of his son. Mary alone seemed to sense the moment and seize the opportunity to display her devotion to the Lord through the humble act of worship. If anyone you would have thought should be worshiping, it would have been the disciples. They'd been with Jesus for three years. My friends, let me tell you something. Today is the day of opportunity to renounce self and, and, and serve the Lord with all that we have. Not tomorrow, not next week, not sometime down the road, not when I get old, but now. Now. You may be here this morning or you may be watching online and and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never realized the fact that He came in order to bear your judgment, the condemnation of God that hung upon you like, like a Damocles sword hanging right above your head. The wrath of God awaits to strike you and the sin that you have earned. But Jesus came. He took that sword. He endured it for himself. He took the punishment and the payment that you and I deserve. He gave his life. That's what the whole purpose of the cross is, to bear your sins, my sins, so that we don't face the wrath of God, but that we become members of his family forever. And if you have not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, there's a word from the Scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week. It is presumptuous to think that you will even get another day. So let me speak to myself and you. What is it that I, what is it that you are holding back, that you've been putting off surrendering to Jesus Christ? And I'm not just talking about unsaved people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about Christians. What is it that we're holding back? What have we been putting off surrendering to Christ? We, we too may be thinking there's a better time. Let me just get through this and then I'll give it all to God. Now We love Jesus, don't we? we but, but are we turning a deaf ear to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, urging us regarding some act of surrender or commitment to Him that we haven't yet been willing to make? I'll remind us again, that to the degree that we are willing to hold back for ourselves, to that degree our worship of the Lord suffers. You ever ask yourself why you were created? You were not created for yourself. We are created by the Creator for Him and His glory. He deserves it all. Leave her alone. Jesus said of Mary, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Her act was not disgustingly wasteful, but rather one of devoted worship. In stark contrast, Matthew in his account informs us that it was soon after Jesus' rebuke of the disciples that that Judas got up, entered into the conspiracy with the religious teachers, betraying him, handing him over for the price of a slave. Mary gave it all. Jesus was willing to, or Judas was willing to sell Jesus out for the price of a slave. And it would take a while longer before the other 11 disciples would be able to, to fully grasp the significance of Mary's after-dinner gesture. Just like it takes time for you and me to grow in an understanding of, of this thing. But the value of Jesus is surpassing, it's, it's, it's greater than, than, than anything else. You'll realize that one day. But what you do for Jesus must be done now. The poor you always have with you. And Jesus isn't minimizing the fact that you have the poor with you. He's just simply saying, they're going to be with you. I'm going away. What you do for me must be done now. And that's the challenge that faces us all. Don't don't let this matter pass you by. Don't don't let the lesson of of this passage of Scripture pass you by too quickly. But instead, ask yourself the question, what does Jesus mean to you? Is he your treasured possession, your prized possession? We recall the the words of the the Lord's Sermon on the Mount when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart right now? What are you thinking of right now? So in commending Mary, Jesus drew a line of demarcation between what is considered extravagant waste, excuse me, extravagant worship and excessive waste. Wherever Jesus went, wherever his name is mentioned, he he generated discussion and debate. That was true throughout his earthly life. It remains true today. You ever enter in conversation with somebody about Jesus? You know? I mean, it's going to generate either a positive response or a negative response. People remain divided over the worth of Jesus. What is Jesus' worth? What is his value? What is the reasonableness of committing one's life to him? And that is going to continue until Jesus comes back. And until then, you and I, who bear the name of Christ, need to realize that he is deserving of all of our worship and all of our praise. But for 2,000 years... Since Jesus walked this earth, mankind has found itself in a dispute over exceptional worth. What is truly worth? What is is the most valuable treasure and worth that you can imagine? Well, we find an illustration of this dispute that went on in Jesus' day and continues in this day in verses 9 through 11. The crowd had been building in Jerusalem for seven days. Remember this text begins by saying it was around the time of the Passover. So you've got crowds coming into Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was located just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And just on the other side of the Mount of Olives was the little village of Bethany. Word got around, ah, Jesus is in Bethany. And so a number of people left Jerusalem and, and they either went over or went around the Mount of Olives to Bethany because they wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus, the one who raised the dead. They were curious. Verse nine talks about Jews and it seems like these Jews were curiosity seekers. They just, they want to catch a glimpse of Jesus. You know, like you know, somebody famous is coming to town, coming through your neighborhood and you want to be sure that you're standing on the street corner when the car passes, you want to see him. You want to see that person. They want to catch a glimpse of Jesus. But then when you look at verse 11, it appears that many of those who were initially curiosity seekers were believing in Jesus. And that's that's really the goal of Jesus' ministry, is it not? Throughout the New Testament, it's all about believing in Jesus. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give his life so that you might believe in him, that you might trust him. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. He came to give His life for you. And He will give life to all who believe in Him. Every word that He spoke, every act that He performed provided evidence that He had been dispatched by the Heavenly Father to call out a people for Himself. And let me remind you, He's doing that in enemy territory. No wonder they killed Him. No matter what you think of Jesus, it's impossible to ignore him. At that time, many were believing in him. But there were others who violently opposed him. It's like two ends of the spectrum. You've got those who believe over here, and you've got those who want to kill him. But the real precarious position is right here in the middle. And that's where a lot of people seem to be comfortable in wanting to live oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but not like you fanatics. No, I don't want to kill Jesus. Jesus was a good man, but I'm here in the middle. No commitment. That's a dangerous place to live. It's still a dangerous place to live. You're either for Him or against Him. And you must make the decision. Who is Jesus to you? And unless he is Lord and of exceptional worth, he is something, else, something less. If Jesus is not worth everything, then he's worth something less. So who is he to you? If anyone should have known better about who Jesus was, it would have been the chief priests. We read about them in verse 10. But you see, the chief priests, these are the religious leaders of the Jews. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew the prophecies. But they were so wrapped up in their own self-interest and their own self-interpretations that they were blinded to the fulfillment of God's prophetic plan, staring them in the face. And they couldn't recognize Him. So rather than reevaluating their doctrinal positions and coming up with different conclusions. They said, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to get rid of him. We have to shut him up. But how are you going to shut Jesus up when you've got Lazarus standing right there as evidence, proof positive that Jesus is who he says he is and is able to do the miracle of raising the dead? How are you going get rid of the evidence. Well, that's what you do. You get rid of the evidence. Not only are we going to kill Jesus, we need to kill Lazarus as well. I don't know about you. I'm looking at the clock. It's 1130. It's 1130 on Sunday morning. Everybody ought to be awake by 1130 on Sunday morning. But to me, that is an amazing thing. Kill Jesus. Kill Lazarus. That'll solve it. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. You know what that is? That shows you how far evil is willing to go. There are no depths to the depraved minds and diabolical hearts of those who stand opposed to the plan of God. The chief priests were primarily the party known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in supernatural miracles. They did not believe, certainly, in the resurrection of the dead. Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, writes these words. He says, Lazarus was a double embarrassment to these Sadducees. Not only did he cause men to go over to the side of Christ, but he was a standing contradiction to their doctrine. They denied that there would be a resurrection, and here was a man who had lived through death. So rather than rethinking all of their theological positions, the chief priests chose to deny the evidence, not only deny it, but destroy it. That is depravity at its darkest. Since mankind's first sin in the Garden of Eden, the fallen world has been characterized by just such a philosophy. The Apostle Paul says it's suppressing the truth. You Remember the old whack-a-mole game? Some of you do. And, and some of you laugh. You did it at the first service too. You know? The whack-a-mole game. You know, whatever that little groundhog or critter pops up, bam, hit him, you know, whack him down. That's what we do to biblical truth. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. He says that, that, that we are exposed to the truth, but we suppress it. And John chapter 3 says this, the reason we do that is that people love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. He's not talking about just your neighbors. He's talking about all of us. That's who we are apart from Jesus Christ. The murderous plot that we read about here in verse 10 is not unique to these chief priests. This is illustrative of the human condition. Jeremiah seventeen nine describes it this way. He says, "It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer: nobody, but God." Put another way, within the innermost part of our being beats the heart of a chief priest. We're just like these guys. By nature, we are no different in our day than they were in theirs. We may look better, at least to ourselves and to one another, but we're no different. The Bible says that God searches the heart. He tests the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That should at least wake us up. That should at least make us think, if God sees everything, then what is he seeing in me? Elsewhere, we're told in Scripture that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took the first bite from the forbidden fruit. The consequences of their actions has been passed along every generation up to this present time, and that includes us. Furthermore, there's nothing we can do. Scripture makes that very clear, that, we, that nothing we can do to remedy our condition. And it's imperative that we understand that. You cannot be good enough for God. The bottom line is we all need a Savior. And the only hope we have is in that one who came from heaven, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, bore the penalty for our sin, was buried, rose from the grave, and he declares now to all that whoever will believe in me will have everlasting life. In John, 1 John chapter 3, we read that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And it seems to me that that is the summary statement of the entire Bible. You can wrap up the whole message of Scripture with that statement the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he did. He did. And he says, whoever will turn from their sin and entrust themselves to me will have eternal life. Someone has said that the Old Testament is a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Because the whole story of the Old Testament points to the coming of Christ, what he would do, and the cross is the place where it reaches that critical point. Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of all of those Old Testament scriptures. He is the seed of the woman. And one day, the seed of the woman did battle with the serpent. And the serpent had his head crushed at the cross. He's a defeated foe for those who know Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, then you don't get in on this. This is why we preach the gospel. The gospel is good news to those who will receive it. It's bad news to those who will not receive it. And the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So Jesus repeatedly in his earthly life withstood the relentless daily assaults of the devil and his minions. When he at last laid down his life, that death was for the purpose of redeeming sinners like you and me. And through Jesus' perfect obedience and his willing sacrifice, he absorbed the sins that, that you and I deserve. And, and today that Jesus is he's calling out sinners to come to him to be saved. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. One day he's coming back. He's coming back, and he's going to call his church to be with him forever. That's the unfolding program of God's story. And there was one day when Jesus asked a group of Jewish religious officials a very probing question. He said, what what do you think about the Christ? Pretty good question. He continues to ask that question of us. What do you think of Christ? To put it in another way, in light of what we've been saying this morning, what is Jesus worth to you? How do you begin to frame an answer to a question like that? Well, maybe it's how you frame the reason for your being here this morning. Why are you here? Um, Have you gathered in order to fulfill some sort of religious duty or maybe to do something morally right? I mean, why are you here, really? Is it a moral obligation? Is it a religious duty? Or have you really come to hear from Jesus today? Have you really come to, to hear what Jesus has to say about your sin problem? Is Jesus worthy of worship today? And do you see that? Do you see that he is worth all? Do you eagerly desire to hear from Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And the answer to that question is, how will you worship him? Will you give him your best? Will you give him your all? That is what God did for you and for me. So when you at last see your sin as it really is, and that's where we must begin, my friends. You know, you see a diamond every now and then and, uh, on display, and when it has that black velvet backdrop, you see really the brightness of the, the colors and, and the light reflecting on that diamond. Imagine that black backdrop being your sin and Jesus being that diamond. It is only when we see our sin in that light that we see how beautiful, how lovely, how all-satisfying our Lord Jesus Christ is And there is no cost, no cost that will be too great in expressing your devotion for him. David, the man after God's own heart, understood that well and he left for us this testimony. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That's pretty, that's pretty enlightening, pretty probing, isn't it? I'm not not going to just go to the dollar store and get something to give to Jesus. I'm going to give him my all. Genuine worship is costly. It's sacrificial. But because Jesus Christ is worth everything, he is worth the investment of all that we have. We don't go home this afternoon and start sorting things through. This one's for Jesus, this one's for me. All belongs to Jesus and can be used for his glory. Worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. And to the degree that we're not willing to sacrifice for the Lord, to that degree our worship of him suffers. Jesus put it this way one day. He said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So last question. Are you among those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? And the good news is this. God has not yet closed the door. He is still looking for those who will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace that even reveals truth like this to us. Scriptures make it abundantly clear that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, and except for the grace of God, which enters our life, we would not know how deplorable we are, how needy we are, and what Christ came to do for us. So Father, I pray that as we consider this, um, this simple story this morning of how young uh, one young woman just was willing to give her very best because Christ was giving his very best for her. I pray that you would speak to our hearts at our point of need. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray for that one who has yet to commit their life to Christ. I pray that something may have been said in this message this morning and and even more directly from from your word that would draw that person to yourself, at least cause them to consider their need for Jesus. And then, Lord, I I pray for every believer who's here today. I ask that you would help us not to be content where we are in our spiritual walk. We know that you are desirous of conforming us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that we would lay ourselves at at, at your disposal, that you would allow us to be willing to express ourselves freely and forthrightly before you and give you our very best. Please accept our gifts, our offering. It may seem small to us, Lord, or it may seem like a lot. Whatever it is, we pray that you would take, accept it, use it to glorify your name and to help us to better see the worth and the wonder of our Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.